Okay, are you guys doing okay? Uh, are you sure? Because I'm a little amped up right now. I don't, I don't know what it is. If you have a seatbelt, specifically a five-point seatbelt, put it on right now. Every time we give a message, I guarantee you, there's something that's ending up on the cutting room floor, and this is especially true for today. So what I've decided to do is all the stuff that's on the cutting room floor of my office right now, I'm going to attempt to do a podcast where it's just me talking about the things that I wanted to talk about, but there's no way that I could have put it into this message. Book reviews and reflections, climate's physical effects, people who are actually making a difference. There's some heroes that are working very, very hard hard towards climate change, and they're amazing people. I want you to know them. And then specifically the top three things you can actually do to make a difference. All of it. So if you don't hear me say any of that, I know. I know I'm not saying any of that. It's just because I've only got, oh my goodness, way too little time right now. Um, and so I want to make sure that you know that I'm going to do my best to try to get that up on the podcast. Uh, Pastor Omer opened us up last week. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, we've been in a Deuteronomy series. In the middle of that series, we're doing a two-parter on the Green New Covenant because our relationship with the land and environment and creation, whatever word you want to use, is woven into our text and our tradition. You cannot get away from our story without recognizing that there's something deeply important with how we treat animals, how we treat the land, how we treat the air, etc. That is just that's central to our story and who we are. At the very end of his message, which if you haven't heard, please go back and listen to it, because much of what I'm going to say today is predicated upon the foundation that he laid last week. He, he asked a couple questions at the very end. Is what it takes for the earth to be set free from bondage our self-destruction? which is the big question that the prophetic voice asks us. Does it have to be that way? And we're going to answer, no, it doesn't have to be that way. Or do followers of Jesus in covenant with God as God's representatives on earth have something to say? The answer is yes, yes we do have something to say. Or do we know something? about being set free from bondage, about being made alive from death and decay, about being made from the earth and for the earth. Do we know something about that? Yes, we absolutely know that. Can we tell the world a different story? He says, I think we can. And today what I'd like to do is push that last question forward and ask the question, what really is the story that you are telling? And what I'd like to do is sum up what is that story and then give you three, the top three challenges that you are going to face and may be even faced right here in this room against that story. So very simply, in summary, we are made in God's image, every single one of you. And this means that when I look into your eyes and your face and when you look and see somebody else, you are peering into the face of God. Do you want to know what God looks like? Take a look around you. Because every single one of you is made in God's image. And the more, this is why community is so important, the more I get to know somebody who is different from me, the greater and more expansive my vision of God becomes. That's the beauty of this. But it is also to say that I am a reflection and a representative of God's character if I am made in God's image. Which means that if God took care in the Genesis story to take chaos and create something beautiful, the creation, then so am I now responsible to both serve and protect 
that beautiful creation because I am made in God's image and I represent and exemplify that ethic, that story. The story continues with teachings for how that looks and how that works. In obedience to God's teaching, which is the word Torah, we sometimes translate that law, but if you've been around Spark any period of time, you know that we're talking about a teaching, guidance, wisdom. Then we follow that teaching to love our neighbor, to love God, what what we say every single week. These are the core and central pieces of our story. And so when it comes to the question of climate change and the crisis that we're facing today, the question is not necessarily for us, the first question, what are we going to do about it? The question is, what is the story by which we're living, and what does the way of Jesus require of me in telling that story in application to the climate change crisis that we are facing? That is the direction that we're headed, because we are a church. We're grounded in the way of Jesus. So we're going to start there and push it forward and through. Omera referenced it last week. This is going to be difficult and challenging. Are we going to come to the conclusion that every single one of us should be vegans? You know, obviously, no, we're not going to say that. That was like, I don't know. These are things that we have to think about. Although in the podcast, I'm going to make a pretty good case for dietary change. So, so we'll, we'll get there. It's going to be challenging, too, because I got this um, anonymous text from a sparker <laughs> that looked at the email that I sent and just said, hmm, that's interesting. We're talking about climate change and look where we are. We're having a barbecue where we're burning carbon. Yes, I understand. And to this anonymous sparker, I will say, (laughs) I will say, I understand and I I, I get the challenge. I I understand. So here's what we're going to (laughs) do. So what I want to do, here's what we're going to do. There are three main challenges that we face that are barriers to movement, that are barriers to understanding, that are barriers to conversation. And what I'm hoping to do today is share with you how the way of Jesus, again, we're grounded in that way, how the way of Jesus is a direct response and answer to every single one of those challenges. The first challenge is denialism, which is a very common refrain and common response to the news that you hear. The second challenge is paralysis. How many of you have ever felt, well, shoot, This is so big, I just don't even know where to start. Or why should I even try? Because I'm just one human on this planet of 7.5 billion. Why should I even try? And then the third challenge that we're going to face, because this is who we are, is about the Bible. And I really struggled. I called it verse exploitation, but I'm not quite sure if that's the right. Because people throw verses at you, right? Let's say, and sometimes you do this too. There's people in this room that will do that. Like, uh, well, but doesn't the Bible say this? So there's this verse, what I'm calling exploitation. You're using that verse to substantiate what you believe. I, then I rest around, well, maybe it's called verse-ism, like it's an, a philosophy, and that wasn't right. But, and then I was like, well, it's not really about the verse. It's about the context. We've been doing this for a long time. It is about context. And then I was like, well, I don't know. Is it really about context? Or maybe they just view the Bible different. So maybe it's a worship of the Bible, bi- bibliolatry. And so I went through all these different iterations. I had some very negative terms, too, that, I, that are on the cutting room floor. The term that I'm going to settle in on is the term biblicism because it comes from a sociologist named Christian Smith, and he has a definition for how people view the Bible that I think is helpful. It's a little technical and academic, but uh, it basically means how you view and what you think the Bible's purpose is and how you think it ought to be used. It's a viewpoint about the Bible. 
So these are the three challenges. Like I said, strap in, here we go. First challenge, denialism. Now, denialism about climate change, about a lot of scientific stuff actually, is a common thread, unfortunately, throughout Christian faith. Throughout a lot, the, the challenge of religion and science and faith in science has been going on for a long time. It can take the shape of a, of a congressman bringing in a snowball into Congress to prove that this is a false. Uh, denialism can come in the phrase of, but CO2 is good for plants, of course. And so we use a piece of truth to deny another piece of truth. One of the ones that um, has been said to me recently is that Antarctica is gaining more ice each year. By the way, that is true. But one of the reasons why that is true is because which freezes sooner, fresh water or salt water? Fresh water. And the reason why it's gaining more ice is because all the fresh water in Antarctica is melting rapidly. And so, so throughout the cycles, it gains all of that ice back in the natural cycles, but that does not negate the fact that it is warming overall. Uh, this is another one that's popular, but sun cycles increase the Earth's temperature naturally. True. But we deny, therefore, the same science that says that the energy of the sun is actually decreasing. So all of these things come at us not as actual scientific thoughtful, logical, really grounded, studied excuses or, or pieces of data, they are really just a different form of denialism. One of my favorites is, but you are still eating meat. Yes, I am. That does not deny the fact that even what I am doing is still contributing to the problem. The problem being that I don't know how to get out of this system that I am in. I still buy groceries with plastic in them. I still drive a combustible vehicle. A, combust a, combust a combustible vehicle, yeah. <laughs> a combustion engine vehicle. And all of you do too. Many of you do too. Some, you know, I am waiting so, like, I think it's AB 1070 in California State Legislature to pass the next Clean Vehicle Act, which gives $7,500 back. They're, they're not passing it yet. And of course, the federal is getting it, you know, they've chopped the, all, the credits, all that kind of stuff. So I'm working at it, I'm trying, but how do I get out of this system that I'm presently in? Denialism is really strong. There's huge psychology behind why we want to deny facts and how facts even embed us stronger in our opinions. Um, please look that up and understand the psychology behind that. I just want to call out that every single one of these things along the way is just simply a form of denialism. It's a way of saying, I do not believe it, therefore it is not true. And that's a problem when it comes to physics, when it comes to science, when it comes to thermometers, when it comes to all of these things. And just in case any of you need to hear a person of faith, somebody who is committed to the way of Jesus, somebody who actually studies and loves the Bible, I would like to do some damage to denialism in a very simple outline that every single one of you can remember and take home. It's very simple. This is not original to me. I found it from somebody else. I apologize. I can't give credit. I forget who it was. One, it's happening. Two, it's us. Three, it's bad. Four, we can change it. Those are four fundamental, real, grounded statements of truth. 
So if you just needed a church to say that, if that's helpful to you, there are plenty of Christians and evangelicals that are very much on the forefront of this, but maybe you just needed to hear somebody who follows Jesus, who loves this Bible, who believes in the trajectory of this faith to say, there is no denialism here. Sometimes you just need to state to people what is actually true. And the reason why that's important is because no matter what you believe, physics, physics is never going to change. This is part of the reason why there's physical laws. No matter what you say, no matter what you deny, no matter what you believe, the physics aren't changing. And the very same things, this is a little bit of a, I better put that away. The very same things that I, I've, I've watched Christian apologists pretty much my whole life. Apologists are, are people who philosophize about arguments that substantiate Christianity. I have watched apologists my entire life. I, it's it's kind of how I'm wired. I like thinking philosophically, etc. It's been amazing to me how the very same science that substantiates Christianity and makes the argument is is like, it, I like those pieces of data. But when that very same science gives you data that argues against something that you don't believe in, then that is immediately dismissed. And so in this particular place, we are not going to embrace denialism. We're going to embrace the, the way of Jesus. What is the contrarian way? What is the opposite way? What is the way of Jesus that says, in the face of denialism, no, that is the prophetic voice. The prophetic voice. Now, prophecy in many religious circles, even still to this day, is understood as foretelling the future, as if you have some sort of clairvoyant, magical, mystical insight into the things that are to come. But in the Bible and in our tradition, a prophet doesn't, here's the famous line, foretell, he forthtells, or she forthtells makes observations about what is, and speaks to the hidden truths that are there right in front of us, and gives voice to the thing that nobody will give voice to. That's what a prophet does. A prophet will speak the truth vociferously, sometimes radically and uncomfortably, and will ensure that that voice is heard. That's what a prophet does. N.T. Wright in his book, Jesus and the Victory of God, which is an amazing, it's only 550 pages, so I was going to read the whole thing for you tonight, but it was, that was just a little bit too much. He's going to argue that Jesus' public ministry within first century Judaism was that of a prophet. And the content of his prophetic proclamation was the kingdom of Israel's God. We can extrapolate that further to say the full nature of the story that we've been telling from Genesis all the way on is what Jesus was about through the prophetic voice. Abraham Joshua Heschel is an amazing uh, Jewish theologian and philosopher. In his book, The Prophets, he has this amazing commentary about who and what the prophets are. To us, a single act of injustice, cheating in business, exploitation of the poor is a slight. To the prophets, it's a disaster. To us, injustice is injurious to the welfare of the people, to the prophets. It is a death blow to existence. To us, it's an episode. To the prophets, a catastrophe, a threat to the world. Oh man, do we need the prophetic voice today. 
Prophecy is the voice that God has lent to the silent agony, a voice to the plundered poor, to the profaned riches of the world. It is a form of living, a crossing point of God and man. God is raging in the prophet's words. And last week, Omer mentioned that one of the reasons why this is so critical is those of us who are in an affluent part of the country and who have affluence and who have means, we will suffer the least when it comes to climate change. But those who are impoverished, those who do not have the same geographical lottery that we do, they will suffer the greatest. And it is us who are doing the most damage and them who are doing the least. It is that reality that says a prophet needs to stand up and speak out the truth for the plundered poor. To and against the profane riches of the world. Because it is a catastrophe. And if my life is doing any damage to another human being, isn't that central to the gospel? That we bring that salvation to this world? Prophets are often looked at in the Bible as weird and off to the side. And oh my goodness, I can't believe they're doing all these things. There's a lot of uh, very unseemly activities that the prophets are doing in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures. But here's the kicker. It's not that they're crazy and we're having to put up with the prophets. What is it? It's that we're the ones who are not seeing the truth fully and they are putting up with us. So a prophet rises up and says, this, what is, should not be. Right into the face of people saying, I don't know what you're talking about. Right into the face of people, but it's fine. Right into the face of but it's really not that bad. A prophet rises up and says, no, it is, and it must stop. The idea of Jesus being a prophet actually comes from Deuteronomy in the book that we're studying right now. The nations you will dispossess. Listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. And so the idea of a prophet rises up against teachings that are false. That's what a prophet does. Then the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites, and you must listen to that person. Because sorcery and divination, those aren't truths. That isn't real. Listen to the prophet who is. And just to put the nail in the, is that the right analogy? Just to put the, just to confirm, that phrase, listen to him, is exactly the phrase that is used at Jesus' baptism. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, this is my son, chosen, listen to him. So, my friends, if you are part of the Jesus movement, if you claim Jesus as Lord, if you call yourself a Christian, whatever name you like to use, you are in the same vein as the prophetic tradition to speak up about the truth in the face of denialism, in the face of people saying it's not that bad, in the face of people making excuses, in the face of people saying, but it's going to be okay. The prophet says, no, the suffering must stop. The pain must end. The injustice shall not, cannot continue. Two major prophets in our particular world that are doing some amazing work in, in climate change, 
Rihanna Gunn-Wright is actually one of the chief architects of the Green New Deal that has been made popular. Uh, I know Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been kind of the political face of it, but the person behind it that has actually been architecting it um, has been Rihanna. And she has this amazing article in Essence Magazine that I would encourage you to go look up and read about why she wrote what she wrote, because some of the political challenges that within the Green New Deal, there are a lot of these social elements to a energy bill. And I'm like, that is exactly correct. That is spot on. Sure, fix the energy crisis and still leave the social disparity. She says, no. And we can do both of these things at the same time. Not only can we, we must. That is a prophetic voice. Catherine Hayhoe is an evangelical. She's married to an evangelical pastor who's written books on the Bible, etc. And she goes around to evangelicals and churches and Christians all over this nation, specifically in places where they deny. And she talks with them and she encourages them to understand. She's an incredible voice, um, incredibly compassionate, incredibly wise and thoughtful. So these are just two particular voices that I wanted you to see and know. There are amazing people doing amazing work. Now, when it comes to the prophetic voice, sometimes we slip into this idea of, can you give me any good news? By the way, later on in just like five minutes, I'm going to give you a whole bunch of bad news, okay? Just, just uh, stop it. Don't do it. So I'm going to give you a lot of bad news, but part of the question that many of us ask when dealing with a daunting, cataclysmic thing like climate change is, can you give me any hope? Now, what I have discerned primarily from the work of Austin Channing Brown is that when we ask this word, can you tell me if there's any hope? What we're really asking for is, can you give me some news that will make me feel good? That's what we're actually asking, because we want to feel good about it. And in her conversation with Dr. Brenda Salter-McNeil during the Austin Channing Brown event that we did and the Bible study that we were a part of, they took that idea to task. Because in the midst of horrendous racial disparities and racism and, and violence, racial violence, You cannot tell me anything that will make me feel good about what is happening. No, their definition of hope is not, give me a story that makes me feel good about, eventually it's going to have a good ending. Their definition of hope, choosing to live by faith, even in the horrendous thing that you are going through. And that, my friends, that to me is the prophetic voice. It's bad, my friends. It is bad. But hope is not going to come by grabbing good news articles that are like, oh, good, they, they planted a million trees. Woohoo! I feel better now. No, it's not about feeling better. It's about continuing to live your values, your convictions, and continuing to live into a, an ecological value, into a creation care value, into a, a Jesus care, creation care value, in the midst of the bad news. So number one, we have denialism. My friends, I'm going to propose to you that the response to denialism is the prophetic voice to speak up and to speak out with truth and with love. Second, 
Let's talk about paralysis. Here comes the bad news. I will tell you, when I look at this stuff and I research, and I am not a climate scientist, I went to Bible college, I know how to play Chubby Bunny and all sorts of crazy games. That's what I got my degree in. So I have to lean and depend upon so many people doing this particular work. There's this uh, amazing person, William Nordhaus, from the uh, unfortunate acronymed Procurement of National uh, Advancements of Sciences. Um, so he's part of this organization. Uh, they've done this calculation uh, that they believe from an economic standpoint is about $31 per ton of a social cost of carbon. In other words, for every ton of carbon that we put into the atmosphere, it's going to cost approximately $31. Now, depending upon which research you look at, what particular data you look at, at, uh, the Global Monitoring Division of uh, NOAA uh, suggested that there's about 9 gigatons, which is about 9 billion tons of carbon that has already been emitted by the year 2010. By the way, that's about 19.8 trillion pounds. That translates into approximately $279 billion worth of social cost that we are incurring just even to this particular day. By the way, I'm giving you all my references. That's really important. So all the websites and links are there for for your information. There's another website, informationisbeautiful.net. They have actually, those numbers that I just gave you were to 2010. Apparently, all the way up until now, 2015, that 9 uh, billion tons has now turned into 1.5 trillion tons, the amount of carbon that we've emitted recently, which turns this number, 279 billion, into almost $46 trillion in social cost. Do you want more bad news? Well, here's your list. Um, It is a long and extensive list of things that are really horrible about what is to come if we do not do anything right now. I will tell you, when I read this stuff, my first inclination is, and I'm sorry, screw it. what What am I going to do? How am I going? And immediately I fall into paralysis. The numbers are so big. The news is so daunting. Everything is just so big. I get paralyzed and I just don't know what to do. So I'm going to propose to you that the way of Jesus is actually a phenomenal answer to that problem of paralysis. And it is found in our core value of living a reconciled life of recognizing that my life is not connected to numbers. My life is connected to this person who wanted bad news this morning. And you, and you, and you, and you, and you. A reconciled life comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's found in our core values. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone's in, in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Some of your translations read, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's probably not correct. It says, in the, and you can kind of see it in the Greek, like there's no word there. If anyone's in Christ, behold, the new creation is here. This is not about an individualism. This is about a recognition that the global thing that God is doing has now happened in the person who has come to Christ. The global thing that God is doing has now happened right here before our eyes. It's not to be interpreted, so I would suggest to you, through the lens of individualism, but through the lens of the global grand narrative and story that God is telling. He is in the business, God is in the business of growing 
of putting all the relationships back together again that were broken, the relationships that were separated, our sense of connectedness with our world and with each other. It comes out of this Isaiah 65 passage. For I am about to create new heavens, new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. This is the new heavens and the new earth. What God did in Genesis was cosmic. It was global. It was about the entire creation. Something happened. We broke it. We faltered. We sinned. All of that theology, all of those teachings, all those ideas. But what God is doing is he's putting it all back together again. And part of what that means then is that I am an agent of reconnecting and reconciling with all of those broken pieces. My relationship is not with the daunting task of those numbers. My relationship is with what food I buy because I want to be an agent of God's new creation in this world. My relationship is with the car that I drive. My relationship is with my neighbor. My relationship is with my neighbor that lives halfway around the world. I want to reinstitute in my mind and in my faith that I am deeply interwoven and connected with those people. There's a phrase that is used called carbon footprint. I think that's absolutely correct. It's a footprint. What is this going to do? A lot. Because every step that I take is another step in the journey of figuring out whether or not I actually am connected with the ground, with the people, with nature, with relationship. Living a reconciled life recognizes, yeah, I I have one. Let me focus on my carbon footprint. Let me see what I can do. And then let me join with others to see what we can do together. And let me live that way, no matter what the numbers say. Because that's who I am as a person who follows Jesus. I'm a person who reconciles all of these broken relationships. So whether that happens to be the major drought and heat wave that took the lives of thousands of people in India this year, whether that happens to be Hurricane Dorian, whether it happens to be the floods that happened in the Midwest this year, or much closer to home, the fires that happened in California, no matter what those things are, the dauntingness and the paralysis of, man, that's so far away. I, I don't know how to put out a fire that's however many acres. It's not, that's not the point. The point is to reconcile the fact that my life is deeply connected to those people. And how dare I say that I am not connected? Are we not a family? Is not the entire story of God bringing in everybody into his family to recognize that they are a brother and a sister in Christ? So that's my job, is to reconcile that relationship and to live into that reality. As soon as I start slipping into the results, as soon as I start slipping into the daunting numbers, that's when I get paralyzed. But if I look into the eyes of somebody I love and somebody I know and somebody who is made in the image of God, I am impassioned and inspired once again to live this kind of reconciled life. You should do all of these things, by the way. You'll save money, by the way. It'll be good economics for you. But the whole point of doing these things is to elevate your conscience to recognize that all of these things are deeply and interwoven and connected with all everything else in this world. And this has become more and more true as the world has become more globalized. Reconciliation is a core value for us because it is what Christ is doing, bringing all relationships back into their proper place. Climate change is a phenomenal avenue by which we can think everything that I do is interconnected with everyone else. 
and I want to live that way. So if you are ever feeling paralyzed, if you are ever feeling like you can't make a difference, if you ever feel like nothing I do will ever make a change, I'm going to encourage you to live a reconciled life. It was just to begin making changes that are deeply and interwoven and connected with another person. Okay, last. I told you this was a lot today. Here we go. Biblicism, the last one. I have been uh, taking after my good friend and co-pastor, Marcus Randolph. I'm trying to be a good social media advocate. It's not my forte. I don't know how to do it, but I'm trying. So I post things, and I've just started trying to interact. I'm not having a great experience, I will tell you. (laughs) Because in this particular post that was way back in April, I'm just trying to encourage, I'm doing what Catherine Hayhoe has encouraged us all to do, which is to keep talking, keep encouraging, keep elevating the issue. Um, I got this one uh, comment back that quotes this passage from Genesis 8. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Clearly the Bible says that all, no matter what happens, even if we are to blame, God is in control and everything is going to be okay. And the only thing that I can think of whenever anybody posts or gives me a verse that kind of substantiates and buttresses their own opinion, the only thing that I can think of is this slide. I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. Biblicism in some ways, for those of you who don't know, this, this comes from a verse in the Bible, Philippians 4. Biblicism is actually in some ways another form of denialism. It's another form of saying, well, I believe this, therefore I don't believe that. And I totally understand that view of the Bible. It is sacred, it is beautiful, it is wonderful. Spark teaches right out of this text. It is core and central to who we are. It is core and central to who Jesus is and was and his teachings. We love our Bibles. But this is not how we use them. We want to ask the question, what did this text mean? What was its original context? What movements were these authors pushing forward What were they about? What were their core values? What kind of redemption were they trying to see in the world? We are asking bigger, larger, more encompassing questions about our text than just simply verses that can be used to substantiate what we already believe. And in fact, that's really a clue because a lot of times there's stuff in there that is rubbed up against what you believe. I will tell you, I do not want to love my enemy. I don't want to do it. I'm just being honest with you. But my text tells me I should love my enemy. So I have to work really, really hard to obey. So if it comes easy, that might be a clue. Okay, so very quickly, what's the answer to this? What is the way of Jesus? Because how did Jesus read his Bible? That might be a good clue as well. What were the themes that he was pulling through? And if you don't know this phrase, you need to take garden to garden when Daniel starts this up in the next year. The answer is the grand narrative. It's to see the scriptures and this text through a much larger, much more beautiful, prophetic, encompassing story that's being told. 
in this quip about Genesis 8, seed time and harvest, clearly, you know, God's going to take care of everything. Basically, what this person is attempting to do is take that verse and make it the whole. And what garden to garden and thinking about the grand narrative does is it does just the opposite. And by the way, notice it goes from right to left because that's the Hebrew scriptures. It takes the whole. What is the whole thing that God is doing? What is the whole message of the story? Redemption and love and justice and compassion and mercy and creation care. What is that? And then we can get to what the verses mean. It's to reframe the entire story. There's so many books out here that are very helpful. Uh, Harvey Cox has one of them that I really, really like. From the beginning, the Bible says, God has shared his power and tried to enlist us in continuing his creation and caring for it. Instead, we have messed it up badly more often than we have gotten it right. But this is the sometimes magnificent but more often miserable history of our species. I love, I love, there's your bad news, Ezekiel. That's, that's how we do. We mess it up. And we need to be aware of it, however painful, because it is not yet over unless we manage to destroy it for good with nuclear fallout or by continuing to dump millions of tons of carbon dioxide into the air. And then I love what he says in this next paragraph. On the other hand, as despots and overlords have learned over the years, the Bible can be dangerous for their health. Yes. It introduces us to a God who leads an enslaved people out of peonage. His prophets warn the affluent about, their to- about the toxic dangers their wealth carries with it. And they thunder against those who trample the poor underfoot. Its apostles defy the mightiest empire history has known. And its seers herald the eventual collapse of tyrannies. When we hear that the Bible is dangerous, we have to ask, for whom and under what circumstances? Oh, I love that quote. There is something big and huge and cosmic that God is doing, upending tyrannies and injustice. And so one of the things that I love about what Danielle does in this is she tries to give you this grand picture that we can understand the story that we're living in. We don't just take verses out and we say, here, The Bible says, well, uh, yes, the Bible says, but is that what it means? Is that what it's attempting to communicate? Tell me the story, and then we can enter into that story. So my friends, put that verse back where it came from and reintroduce yourself to the fullness of the story and avoid biblicism and versification and verseism and bibliolatry and all those words that we might use and embrace the grand narrative. God's doing something big and huge and cosmic, and he's calling every single one of us into that story. This is what's so meaningful and purposeful about our scriptures, facing one of the greatest challenges humanity has ever faced. You are being called by your text already, by your tradition already, to enter into one of the greatest endeavors that we have ever entered into for justice and for salvation and for creation. I'll end with this article, Tropical Depressions, More Bad News, Ezekiel. So um, this is a really incredible uh, article about climate change, but it's really not actually about climate change. It's about us. There's a lamentation about why can't we believe this? Why can't, what is it about us that prevents us from saving ourselves? In the article, there's an author that references the Great Barrier Reef down in Australia. And He mentions how the previously had been really beautiful and really wonderful, and now it's just all bleached. I mean, the the coral reef is dying, right? 
His reaction to this reality as a result of global warming, as a result of the oceans getting higher levels of temperature, therefore higher levels of acidity, he writes this. We've given up. It's been my life managing water quality. We failed. Even though we've spent a lot of money, we've had no success. What do you do after the worst has already happened? What do you do when the worst has already happened? For those of you who know your Jesus story, doesn't this question ring true? What do you do when Rome has destroyed your family? What do you do when your Savior is dead on a cross? What do you do when your children are dashed against the rocks? What do you do after the worst has already happened? But clearly something is wrong with this view. After all, the first thing to go extinct from global warming was Aristotle's rational animal, the idea that you and I think rationally. We do not think about things and then do them afterward. We do not think at all. The problem, it turns out, is not an overabundance of humans, but a dearth of humanity. If humanity is the capacity to act meaningfully within our surroundings, then we are not really or not yet human. This article on the devastation of climate change is focusing on you and I. And most of the material that I've been reading does not talk about carbon and gigatons and atmospheric science. The vast majority of the articles talk about where is the soul of our people? Because that's really where the crux of it is. It's amazing to me to read these articles in these books and them to come down to one basic thing. Who are we as a people? So this is what gets me excited and impassioned about talks like this, communities like this, because we have a story that identifies who we are in this. Can we tell this different story? The answer is yes, we can tell a different story. We do not deny we have a prophetic voice. It's in our tradition. It's the way Jesus lived. We are not paralyzed. We are connected, deeply interwoven with one another. And we do not see the Bible as a trophy. We see the Bible as a grand story. That is a tradition that has been passed down to us. And my friends, if we can live into those realities, then we will be well on our way towards modeling what it means and what it looks like to live in this current crisis that we're living through. And that, my friends, is the next step and journey in what it means to live out this covenant that God has called us into. And that is my encouragement to all of us today. Amen? Again, there's so much more. I hope to put those in the podcast in a couple days or so. So I will try to get some of that out to you. I'd like to move us into communion. Spark, may you be a prophetic voice to this world. May you interconnect and intertwine and reconcile your life with one another. And may you live into this grand, beautiful story that God has been telling ever since the very beginning. In his name, amen.